93X presents the Celebration Rock Podcast with Stephen Hyden. This is the Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and uprocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. Today, we are going to be talking about Queens of the Stone Age, one of the great rock bands of the last 20 years, a band that I have loved for a very long time. They have a new record coming out on Friday, August 25th. It's called Villains. Uh, we are not going to be talking about that record on this podcast. <laughs> or, I mean, we're going to be talking about it a little bit, but you see, I, I have a review coming up about this record later this week on uprocks.com, and um, I don't want to scoop myself. Um, and I know my editors don't want me to scoop myself, so I'm not going to go too much into my review uh, in this podcast. And I know that my guest today, uh, she's going to be reviewing the record for Pitchfork, later this week and her editors don't want her to scoop her review either. So by the way, her name is Zoe camp. (laughs) That's my guest. And she does write for pitchfork. She's also written for the AV club, the village voice, spin magazine, and a bunch of other places. Really smart writer. She has a lot of great things to say about Queens of the stone age. She's a big fan. Uh, and we talked about the band's career, uh, going back to the first record, the self titled record in 1998, and up through Like Clockwork. Um, uh, so that's six records that we talked about, as well as some of the side projects, like Eagles of Death Metal and Them Crooked Vultures. And, uh, you know, if you liked our Pearl Jam series, you know, that, that, that seven-part series we did on the band earlier this year, this episode is sort of like that series, except it's one episode. <laughs> so we're going through an entire band's discography, talking about why this band matters, what they did well, maybe what they didn't do well, but instead of doing several episodes, we're just going to condense it down into one. So that's what this is, sort of a short critical history of Queens of the Stone Age with a little bit of a teaser to talk about villains. But really, you're going to have to read about my opinion of that a little bit later on in the week. Uh, before we get to Zoe, I want to tell you about one of our sponsors for this week. It's our good friends at SeatGeek. Buying tickets to sports and concerts can be complicated, but there is a better, simpler way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest Easiest way to get tickets to live events. With SeatGeek's seamless mobile experience, you can buy and sell tickets in just two taps. SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like seeing your favorite team or musician in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and it's by by far the easiest way I've found to shop for tickets. I can be anywhere, and with just a few taps, I can instantly find seats. I actually just use SeatGeek to buy tickets to see Jason Isbell in Madison. He's going to be playing there Labor Day weekend. I've actually seen Jason twice already this year, but uh, the shows were so phenomenal that he's just one of those people that I'm going to see if he's in my area. So I use SeatGeek to buy those tickets, and uh, it was a great way to do it. And I think you guys should check it out too. And uh, I have a special deal for listeners of this podcast. All you have to do is you download the SeatGeek app, and you enter in the promo code CELEBRATION today. That's promo code CELEBRATION, and you will get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. I know you guys go to a lot of concerts because you listen to this podcast. If you're going to buy a ticket anyway, why not try this app? Get the $20 off if you download the app and just punch in CELEBRATION. So, again, that's a special deal for the listeners of this podcast. Don't say I never hooked you guys up. So... Zoe Camp is my guest on this week's podcast. We talked about Queens of the Stone Age. We went through the whole band's catalog, and I think it was a really great conversation about a band that I truly love. So uh, without further ado, here is me and Zoe 
talking about Queens of the Stone Age. You know, I said in the intro to the pod that uh, we're not going to be talking about Villains, the new Queens of the Stone Age record, because we're both going to be reviewing it later this week, later this week from when this podcast mm-hmm. posts. So let's talk about the band's career. And I wanted to talk about Queens of the Stone Age with you because I know you're a fan. We've engaged a little bit on Twitter, talking about like favorite Queens of the Stone Age songs and, and all that. Um, I'm curious, like, when did you get into the band? Like, what was your entry point into becoming a fan? And, and what is it exactly that you that kind of pulled you in that, that made you like them? Um, I heard Queens of Stone Age for the first time when I was 10 years old. It was Christmas night, 2002, and we were driving uh, to our uh, a family friend's house. And uh, we had the radio on, and there's this awesome station in the Baltimore, D.C. area that's sadly no longer around called uh, WHFS, and they're playing No One Knows. And I remember looking up and uh, thinking, like, whoa, that is one amazing riff. It was the riff that kind of stuck in my head, and the song was stuck in my head for about a couple solid days after that. But I didn't really get deep into the band until uh, about two years later when, um, or I guess two and a half to three years later when uh, Lullabies to Paralyze came out. And I remember seeing that at the uh, local library, and I would always borrow CDs and rip them that way. So I had the edited version of Lullabies to Paralyze, and I just wore that out. I think that record is uh, is awesome. So it's weird because a lot of people's entry point to Queens is songs for the deaf or rated R, but for me it was actually a little bit later. And then I went back and kind of pieced together the canon from that point backwards. And you mentioned like when you heard No One Knows, like the riff stood out for you, and then mm-hmm. you know later you got on, you got into uh, uh, Lullabies to Paralyze. And by the way, uh, No One Knows comes from 2002's Songs for the Deaf, which is a very big record in Queens of the Stone Age's history, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But as far as like what drew you in when you were listening to that uh, 2005 record, Lullabies to Paralyze, I mean, what to them, I guess, made them unique or special that kind of, you know, endeared them to you? I think it was basically the whole concept of the, it's almost like a cartoonish kind of evil. Like it's very appropriate. <laughs> their new record is called Villains. And Josh Homme has mentioned this a couple times in interviews where they kind Queens have always had this kind of air of villain villainy to them. You know, they're very, there's kind of, there's a macho-ness to it, but it's also very much kind of sly and seething and very much like, you know, a devil in a black leather jacket or something. So <laughs> right. I think I found, especially, and then on Lullabies to Paralyze had that kind of um, Grim Brothers, really creepy feel to it. And, you know, because someone, there's a song on there called Someone's in the Wolf that's very, you know, it's a very long and very kind of uh, Little Red Riding Hood in hell. And I remember hearing all this stuff and being kind of blown away by how sinister it sounded, but it wasn't so sinister that I couldn't, like, dance to it or not along when I had it in the CD player on my way to school, you know? They, Queens of the Stone Age have always had this, you know, it's a dark energy, but it's it never felt... Um, hostile and it never 
it, it feels inviting and it's kind of an escapism, I suppose. Right, right. And, you know, you mentioned sort of the macho aspect of, of, of what they are. It is also, mm-hmm. you know, when you look at the name, the Queens of the Stone Age, I mean, and Josh Homme has talked about this when they were first, when he was first conceiving the band, you know, there's, there was this idea that, well, maybe we'll be kings of the Stone Age, but then he decided, no, we want to be queens of the Stone Age, I think is almost like a subversive type thing. Like with, Definitely. Of, you know, with hard rock and, and heavy metal, this idea of being very male-oriented, that Queens has that aspect to it, but there's also, you know, a melodic quality to what they do. There's uh, a very sort of tender quality to Josh Omey's vocals. And for mm-hmm. lack of a better term, there's a softness uh, in their music along with sort of the aggressive riffs and, and all that stuff and the attitude that they have. Um, Definitely. And I think what distinguishes them from the quote unquote cock rock bands <laughs> of that time and uh, sense is that they, they're very, it's sensual, but it's sensual with it to an, with an eye to the other individual. Right. Listening to Queens's music, that they, that the way that they talk about women or, you know, sex in general has never struck me as outright misogynistic or never rubbed me the wrong way. I think that they have, you know, they don't, they don't like Buck Cherry. They don't have a song like Crazy Bitch, you know. <laughs> they have songs that are about, you know, femme fatales, but they're never, you know, it's never from that type of kind of rote perspective. Yeah. So, yeah, I think they're subversive in that sense. And definitely the way that Josh, like the, how much he, lo- that guy loves to croon. And I think it was kind of interesting on Songs for the Deaf because, you know, you have the interplay between Hami, who's very much kind of like a feminine, almost like a feminine presence. And then you have Nick Oliver, very much the polar opposite. So I think that dynamic interplay also um, is a key aspect of what makes them so special. Yeah. And, you know, well, let's go back here because I think that with Queens of the Stone Age, with their catalog, you can really split it into different eras, almost, like, I would say, three different eras. And the beginning mm-hmm. era uh, would be the first three records. You have the 1998 self titled record, you have 2000s rated R, and you have Songs for the Deaf that came out in 2002. And let's call that the Nick Oliveri period when he was mm-hmm. the bass player in the band. Um, I know you said that you, you started with Lullabies the Paralyzed, but then you went backward. I mean, did you go right to Songs uh, for the Deaf after that? I mean, did you explore all three of those well, I records? Songs for the Deaf and then R. I didn't get into the self-titled as... Uh, I've I've heard certain songs from the self-titled because they've appeared on, like, um, B-Sides collections, like um, If Only, which has existed... If Only is from the self-titled, as I'm sure you know, but it's exist, existed as, like, a B-Side or kind of a throwaway and it, you know, under different names, like if only everything and stuff like that. So I got into that, but then um, I don't think I got did a deep dive into the self-titled until like well, deep into the internet age after YouTube because I couldn't find it and at local record stores before it was uh, repressed. I'm pretty sure it was remastered in like 2010. Yeah, well, yeah, I think it was like 2011, like it was reissued. Yeah, yeah, it was 20, it was my freshman year of college. That's right. And it was like. But, it was this period like where, yeah. where Josh Omi was actually, he went through a period where he was, uh, he had surgery, I think, on his knee, and he went through a period where he was really sick and mm-hmm. went through a deep depression. And part of his sort of comeback that led to, led to, the, to, to the 2013 record, Like Clockwork, was the reissue of that first record. And they went out on tour in support of that. And it kind of reignited his interest in the band and, uh, and brought them back uh, after, after a low point. Um, 
but going back to those first few records, because you know I'm I'm older than you, so I have a different entry point with them. I I came into the band when those records were new, and and really it was Rated R that was sort of the first record I heard, and then Songs for the Deaf was like the one that really made them one of my favorite bands of that period, and um, I think for me the the big attraction of that band was that you know kind of going back to the subversive aspect. To me, they were sort of the only example of an archetypical type rock band that I've always loved that existed in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, which is sort of the hard rock band with mainstream appeal that also has critical respectability. You know, so like a mm-hmm. cheap trick or, uh, you know, like a Blue Oyster Cult or, you know, bands like that, that, you know, they could appeal to the masses, but then they had something a little bit strange about them that would also appeal to critics. And, at that time in rock music, and even now I think you could say this is true, that you know you have indie bands and you have metal bands and you have mainstream, I guess, you know, cock rock bands as we were saying, but there's not a lot of like sort of smart hard rock bands. Uh, I mean, Queens of the Stone Age is, Queens of the Stone Age is really the only example that I can think of that's significant from the last 20 years. I mean, maybe you could say Mastodon has kind of evolved in that direction after being more of a metal band. Um, but I don't know. To me, they've always been like that. And, and, and Songs for the Deaf was kind of like the crystallizing moment <laughs> for me when yeah. it kind of became like the band that was like that of this generation. I mean, in some regards, too, I think that they kind of sprang fully formed because, I mean, as itself, Queens is an offshoot right. when you think about it because there's, you know, it, it started with Caius and then that band kind of dissolved and you had, I think, its essence in uh, Homie. Is it Homie or Homie? You know, Derek, what's your opinion on this? I've always been a Homie guy. I think it's Homie. Yeah. Okay, I thought it was Homie too. I just wasn't sure. Okay, I, just I know. I, but, I, I'm terrible with pronouncing but, things. I've, have, have I said Ami or do I say Homie? Homie. <laughs> but Homie sounds homie. cool though, right? I like it. Yeah, yeah or, or Home. We could say Home, but let's go with Home. Um, I'll just I'll just go with Homie because I think it's uh, we're going to go with likely that. to mess it up. But anyway. <laughs> um, let me think where I was. Uh, you were saying that they were that. always yeah, been fully yeah, formed. He's the essence of the group, the melodic aspect. Because I think, you know, Caius was, you know, they're a very important band. I love them to death. I think that, you know, I, Queens led me to kind of going down the uh, desert rock rabbit hole. So, right. And they were, and Caius Reno were pivotal in building that genre. But I think that Queens had a certain, it's more potent you don't have to, you know, it's it's not covered in this marijuana haze, although sometimes <laughs> they can bring in the clouds, but it's never, it, it felt more direct. Right. And I think that's the difference you hear in the debut record from Queens is that, you know, you have basically the game plan for what we're going to be working with, which are these taut, you know, guitar rhythms, this one riff that you build everything around. And, you know, it has a punch to it. But it, and it, you know, it's a hard, it's working man's hard rock, but it also has this extra component. And I've read some reviews where they kind of compare it to can and compare it to more experimental stuff. But I think it's more just kind of like looking towards kind of a, a, the common unifying aspects of what makes a rock song great. And that's, you know, you can just look at the songs they've covered. They've covered everyone from the subhumans to the cramps to ZZ Top. And I think that speaks to the kind of, oh, and Elliot Smith, they have a cover of Christian Brothers, which is really weird. Right. But I think that that just kind of runs the gamut and shows to the broader canon that I think 
they honor, but that they also differentiate from, as we've established before. Yeah, no, I, I think that's totally right. I mean, and to go back to Caius, for people that maybe haven't heard Caius before, you know, as Zoe was saying, this was sort of the origin band for Queens of the Stone Age. They got started in the late 80s and went into the 90s. And I would say if you're going to compare the two bands, that Caius, you know, I mean, Queens of the Stone Age in their early days was described as a stoner metal band. But I think that mm-hmm. that tag applies more to Caius, which is a much more sort of, you know, like you said, very, it's very stony. You know, there's a lot like the very low rumbling bass songs that go on for a really long time. You know, yeah. very Black Sabbath sounding stuff. Whereas Queens of the Stone Age, I think, as you were saying, it there's some of that in there, but there's also more of a punk rock thing. There's also more of a pop thing. You can hear some echoes of like grunge, like in their music mm-hmm. a little bit, um, although without sort of the like overt angst, you know, as you were saying, I, I think with Queens, there there has always been that sort of sexual aspect to their music, which is a, again, I think a unique thing in rock music now where you either see bands that seem to be afraid of sex or they're forwarding this sort of like very kind of broish version of you know like male first sexuality where it's almost like masturbatory you know like the woman doesn't mm-hmm. even matter and i think you made a good point before where in queen songs you feel like josh when he's singing does care about the woman in the scenario that that it is like a two-way street and it makes it sound i think sexier than it does in a lot of other i mean kind of yeah songs. you think of, you think about a song called uh, go with the flow, you know, off songs for the deaf as their biggest hit. And it's really a song about, you know, kind of, it's a breakup song. And, you know, I think one of the coolest things in listening to Queen songs is about, you know, how much do you reveal to someone? How much of yourself do you show? Um, what's real? What's not real? You know, I was reading another uh, snippet that Hami, you know, another bit of Hami wisdom. And he's, there's always three sides to every story, your side, my side, and what happened. <laughs> and I think that, you know, seeing the differences in that and you'll notice in the songs, he's he's getting suckered over a lot more than the other way around. Right. But I also will say that, you know, as a young, like, queer woman, like, figuring out my identity, I looked at Hami and how, you know, he never shows his emotions. He's always, you know, lurking in the back and he's so mysterious and aloof. And I just saw that and I was like, man, I want to be cool like that guy. <laughs> I think he might have even factored into my decision to pick up smoking, which to anyone listening that is on the fence about or has been tempted to try, don't try it. Bad. Right. <laughs> bad free voice. It is true, though, because like, like Josh and Nick Alvary at that time would always be smoking and it would always look awesome. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, like I said, like this was the period that I came in, the, the Nick Alvary period, those first three records. And like for me, that's still the greatest period of the band. Like I like, I mean, I like every one of their records, but this is still sort of the peak. And I think that's sort of the consensus opinion that that was, that those are the strongest records. Is that an opinion yeah. you share though? Like, cause I know you came in a little bit later. I mean, do you still look at those? I mean, do you look at those as like kind of the pinnacle of the band? Oh, in retrospect, a hundred percent. I mean, I don't think it's even comparable because the other thing I think that's key to Queens is that it's kind of, you know, part of this whole, desert sessions thing where Hami would, you know, perform with lots of musicians from around Joshua Tree, but also elsewhere. And that's how, you know, he, he starts working with Mark Lanigan and that's how he starts working with, um, you know, uh, well, no, Chris Ghost, the producer who produced most of the earlier stuff. 
I think is another, you know, key component of that because he understood the desert rock sound so much. But, you know, it's really this communal effort you see on the first ones. You have tons of session musicians, a lot of people swapping vocal duties, and it really felt like a, a kind of, I think it offered so many levels of depth in addition to the interplay between Oliveri and Hami that I talked about earlier. You have all these different vocal styles, oftentimes intermingling within the same song sequence. Um, and I think it also allowed the technical abilities to shine to an extent that, for whatever reason, doesn't feel as strong in um, the subsequent work. I mean, to be fair, um, and we'll get to this a bit later, I think, you know, Troy Van Leeuwen brought a very important, like, element to the whole, like, Queen's um, concept by introducing a lot of these kind of creepy types of guitar um, arrangements. But I think by and large, the core group of musicians you had during this opening period was um, just, they never, never like amassed that qual that like sheer um, amount of talent in on one record. Yeah. Again. And, and of course you have Dave Grohl famously playing drums on songs for the deaf, which was a big, of course, yeah. that played a big role in sort of the mainstreaming of the band. I mean, they, they started to get some, good press with rated R, but then having, you know, like probably the most famous rock star of, of the last 20 years on your record, uh, yeah, definitely raised their profile. <laughs> um, but you know, you, you make a really great point here about sort of the collaborative nature of those early records. And you mentioned the desert sessions, which for those who aren't aware, it was this collection of albums that, uh, were sort of released under the Queens of the Stone Age banner or they were related to it anyway. And it was essentially jam sessions that Josh Homey would, would host in the desert with a rotating cast of musicians, um, many of whom were famous. I think Dean Ween was involved in that. Um, mm -hmm. I think PJ Harvey was involved. Um, I don't know if Trent Reznor was involved at that point or not. Uh, but you know, at any rate, there were a bunch of famous people that dropped in and out of that. And then after Nick Alvary uh, sort of departs the band, and it, I guess in retrospect, it's amicable, but at the time, I mean, Nick Oliveri is a lunatic. I, I mean, I think it, it, it's safe to say that. Mm -hmm. And it was not maybe the best guy in the world. And I think at some point, and, and, you know, and there is this sort of history of Josh Omi surrounding himself with people who maybe aren't um, totally on the level, the, the, who, who don't seem to have it together as much as he does. I mean, I think Jesse Hughes from Eagles of uh, Death Metal would be another example of being another loose cannon, to put it lightly, that Josh omi has been friends with. But, um, but after those first three records, Queens of the Stone Age really does become, I think, in a way, there's sort of a precursor to what a lot of bands are now, where it's one person doing, you know, who, who's in control of the ship and maybe writing all the songs and is in control of the studio. And then when they go tour, they kind of present more as a band. But like in reality, mm -hmm. it's one person. And it, Queens, I guess, I mean, in a way, they were they were among the first. Like Josh Omi was like among the first people to do that. I guess you could go back to Trent Reznor too and Nine Inch Nails. And there's other examples, but I mean, now it seems like most bands are like that, you know, where there's one person and it's not really like a, a democracy. It's like one person who's in control of everything. Um, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely seemed, seemed that way, um, judging from the past couple records. And I, I mean, to that end, I think that, you know, Hami is the nexus around, he's the sole constant, he's the pillar. Um, but I think, what really, I think 
that the key to kind of separating Queens' work is within the universes, as you've said. So you have the Oliveri thing, and that was, I think, also the other key thing that made that period so great is just Oliveri's approach, you know, to song. His creative mindset, I feel, is super percussion-based as opposed to melody. Right. Um, and I think that both in his as a bassist and as a vocalist, I think, you know, he, he, he goes into melody occasionally, but I think that he really brought the metal aspect to Queens of Stone Age. I think were it not for his involvement, they would not have been known as a metal band, even with the Caius connection. Right. And I think that um, after he left, the band, for better or worse, lost that kind of those heavy metal links. Right. And they flirted with it. And there's definitely songs on every Queen's album later that, you know, blow the speakers. But um, I think that was kind of um, stylistically speaking, a defanging. Yeah. So I, yeah. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, my sense of, of Josh Omi is that he's not really a metal guy. I don't I don't get the impression that that's really where his heart I mean, is. The guy loves uptown funk. Right. Then again, exactly. Lots of people do. But right. We're not for uptown funk. We would not. He, he would not have linked up with Ronson. So. And I, I, I think too that there's an element of, of Omi who likes being around danger. You know, and I, and I mentioned this before. Mm-hmm. With you know, he's kind of surrounded himself with like loose cannons. And my impression of him is that he is not a loose cannon. I think he's got it together. He seems like a pretty cool customer. But I think he likes being in the vicinity of danger. And Nick Oliveri definitely, definitely. brought a sense of danger to the early Queens of the Stone Age records. And I think after he left, um, they did become more or less more of a mainstream rock band. Like they, that definitely made them, I think at, that was the point where, you know, and it was probably because Dave Grohl was on Songs for the Deaf, but like people started comparing them more to like the Foo Fighters, you know, than, mm-hmm. than like maybe a stoner metal band or something. All right, we're going to have more Queens of the Stone Age conversation in a moment here. But before we get to that, I want to tell you about our sponsor for this week, our other sponsor for this week, and that is our friends at ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? It's really hard to find people in this day and age who can get the job done. But if you want to find the best candidates, you want to use ZipRecruiter. You can post your job to 100 plus job sites in just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-find dashboard. And I have a special deal for listeners of this podcast. All you need to do is go to ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free. You just go to ZipRecruiter.com celebration, and you can post a job for no money at all. That's right. That's ZipRecruiter.com celebration. One more time. To try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash celebration to post your job for nothing. All right, let's go back to me and Zoe talking about Queens of the Stone Age. Before we leave this early period, I feel like the debate with Queens of the Stone Age is always which is the better record, Rated R or Songs for the Deaf. It seems like generally people pick one, you know, one of those records as their favorite. I was wondering, are you in that camp? And if so, which one would you pick as your favorite? Honestly, um, I think that Rated R is more, um, takes bigger risks, and I think those risks pay off more. Songs like, you know, Better 
better living through chemistry and uh, especially songs like In the Fade and Autopilot. I think, you know, you have a really kind of clever interpolation of like effects and um, atypical instrumentation like bongos and stuff. Um, and I think that that kind of makes it more rewarding. I think that that's, that takes the most, it's the most ambitious release. And I also think it has an edge over songs for the deaf in that it doesn't have the, you know, songs for the deaf is kind of a concept album in that, you know, the songs are kind of punctuated and broken up by these uh, radio skits. And I appreciate the concept. And I like the whole idea that it's like, okay, we're putting you in the driver's seat on a trip through the desert. But as a listening experience, I think rated R is preferable. That said, Songs for the Deaf um, has uh, the the title track is probably my favorite song they've ever put out. And that opening sequence of Millionaire, No One Knows and First It Giveth is, I think, like probably in the top five, like opening runs of any rock album ever. Right. So it's hard. Um, I guess. Uh, I'll probably just have to go with the latter just in terms of the number of times I've replayed it because it's a catchier record, but I think they both, you know, they both deserve their props. So when you say the latter, do you mean Songs for the Deaf? Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, Songs okay. for the Deaf, I would say, is my personal favorite, but it's it's really just kind of splitting hairs at that point. Yeah, okay, so you've, you've basically stated my rationale for this comparison. I, I agree with pretty much everything you said. I, I, I think that Rated R, you know, is a record that even now seems um, to, like totally unique. I mean, because it is a rock record. Um, it has the metal influences. It, you know, it has like the Nick Alvary screaming songs. But there's also this like electronic element to that record. There's mm-hmm. like, a, like a, there's a pop friendliness to that record, which, but at the same time, it's not pandering to anything. Um it's a very unique combination of influences uh, that uh, I think was very specific to Queens of the Stone Age. And even now, I don't really hear a lot of bands uh, working in that kind of vein as successfully as they were. So I think you're totally right that 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 record gets points for being just a totally original record. But like you, <laughs> you know, it's hard to deny songs for the deaf. That is probably my favorite like hard rock record of the century. Like if I were to rank just records I've listened to the most and that I love the most, um, like on like in the hard rock wing, that would be uh, my favorite. Oh yeah, by far and wide, same here. Um, and uh, and it, you know, and the thing you said about the opening run is incredible. And the great thing about that record is that it is that you can hear Josh Homey peaking as a songwriter, but at the same time that band was big enough that you could have Mark Lanigan singing on, uh, you know, Hanging Tree, and you could have the mm-hmm. Nick Oliveri songs, and you could have Dave Grohl making such a huge contribution to that record. It's probably my favorite record of Dave Grohl's as far as him being a drummer. Um, his drumming performance on that record is incredible. I mean, the drums on, like, First It Giveth are just ridiculous. It's like, why is this guy singing and playing guitar in a band? He should just be playing drums. Like when I listen to that record. Um, so yeah, it, it, I think it gets the edge for me, but yeah, it's very close. And th- those two records definitely seem like the top two for me. But then the self-titled record is, is a strong number three for me personally. Um, I think those records just kind of stand apart. Uh, yeah, I will say that I think, you know, while I really liked the stylistic shift they took um, after 
songs for the deaf by bringing in Troy Van Leeuwen and, you know, who really, you know, he does a lot of really kind of creepy, crawly, weird kind of technical guitar work, a lot of kind of mournful, wailing guitar bits. And I felt that, you know, I thought that that was a really cool texture that they worked in on Lullabies to Paralyze. And I think some of my favorite songs, you know, like Tangled Up in, in Play and Tangled Up in Plaid <laughs> and, you know, uh, Burn the Witch yeah. and The Blood is Love. I love those, the creepiness of those songs. But I also felt like that album was needed a, needed a major editing job. And I think that you could say the same for Era Vulgaris as well. Right. Well, and this is like, you know, let, let, let's shift into the middle period now, you know, because these mm-hmm. are the two records that, you know, you know, Lullabies to Paralyze and Era Vulgaris. Era Vulgaris came out in 2007. I mean, I feel like the consensus generally is that these are the two weakest records in their in their catalog. I, I don't think anyone would say that they're bad records. I think that they're both good. I mean, I, like I said, I think Queens has not made a bad record. I think they're all... They all have yeah, their attributes. Yeah, I agree with that statement. But I, I do agree with you with uh, Lullabies the Paralyzed that, um, I mean, I don't know how long that record is, but it it's maybe the spottiest record that they've made. Or, I mean, Era Vulgaris is, is, is pretty spotty too, but just the, the gap between the peaks on, on, on Lullabies the Paralyzed and some of the valleys is, is really wide because... Yeah, you know, it's, you know, it's got a really bad... Um, after you know someone's in the wolf I, the whole thing just kind of slumps and i think the same can be said for era vulgaris you know they both have really strong tracks and queens have never never let us down when it comes to kind of to great openers right but th- those two albums just kind of ran out of steam and i think that that might partially be that kind of the adjustments um you know because they've they'd lost a lot of, you know the creative you know, all the creative parameters that kind of shifted there. But I also just think it's a flat line that, you know, Joey uh, Castillo, who came in to do the drumming on those albums, he's like a good drummer, but he, you know, after Dave Grohl, it's definitely a a, a downgrade. (laughs) And uh, you never, he, I felt that, you know, he, he, um, he's competent and none of the songs I'd say that the drumming is terrible, but it's just another level of oomph that's missing because right. you've essentially taken a collective and uh, shortened it to three people right. with occasional interjections from other people, whereas the last album, I think, was much more um, collaboratively minded and, you know, more brains the better, right? Yeah, <laughs> and and again, I think that this was a time when, you know, they just felt like, they're becoming more of like a regular band. Like those first three records, mm-hmm. they, they were a band, but like not really. It was sort of like a band that was that was imagined, you know, that was imagined. And like we came into a studio, we're just friends playing together. But you know, we're, we don't have like sort of the strict confines of what a band is. You know, we can let in anyone, and anyone can play. And you know, it's, there's a looseness to it that I think gives those records a certain kind of vitality. Whereas with these middle period records. It's sort of like, well, you know, we, now we're in this sort of like K-Rock world, you know, and we have to yeah. try to fit in here, even though we don't really fit in, you know, because I think one of the great things about Queens of the Stone Age, you know, again, they don't really fit in with any particular scene, I don't think. I mean, they're not an indie band, but they're also too indie to be grouped in with like the Nickelbacks and the Hinders and all those people that would be played, you know, like on a lot of mainstream rock stations. Um 
But yeah, you know, Lullabies of Paralyze, I mean, it has I Never Came on it, which would be a top 10 song for me by Queens of the Stone Age. It has In My Head, which is another great mm-hmm. song. You, me- you mentioned Tangled Up in Plaid, which is great. There's the song that the dude from ZZ Top plays on. I think that's Burn the Witch. Burn the Witch. Yeah, that, that's a great song. Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, I, we're, I mean, we agree on what the, I think it's pretty obvious what the, what the strong songs are on that record. And then, yeah, in the second half, it, it drops off. Air Vulgaris is a record that I'm kind of curious to re-explore at some point. That's the one I've probably listened to the least. Although it also seems like maybe like the most atypical Queens of the Stone Age record. Um, at least as far as having more of maybe like a new wave punk influence. I'm, am I right on that? I mean, that's my impression I of that record. Like Air Vol- you know, Air Vulgaris, I definitely had lots of Air Vulgaris um, flashbacks listening to the new record because mainly because the drum sound, the ma- distinguishing aspect of that record to me is that it sounds super condensed. Um, Hami compared it once to like an electrical worker, and I think that's an apt comparison in that, um, you know, after all of these grim fairy tales and really sweeping, like moody stuff, you're back to really terse kind of pulp fiction type stuff. That's very, (laughs) you know, the, the guitars are really gnarled. Like I said, the drums are super compressed and sometimes even sound like a drum machine. Um, Misfit Love, I will say the fifth track on that album is probably my top, uh, definitely my top 10 could even be my top five. I listened to that that song and threes and sevens, I think definitely more than anything off the uh, definitely off more than anything off the self-titled as blasphemous as that sounds. Cause I know a lot of fans don't like that record and because a lot of people say it sounds like lifeless, which means the electrical worker comparison. It's definitely <laughs> robot rock. Right. Um, but I think songs like, you know, misfit love threes and sevens, six, 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 um, Again, the first half of that album, it contains, I think, some of their best stuff. But then after Threes and Sevens, you start getting into songs like Run, Pig, Run, which I consider to be the worst Queen's song. <laughs> and one of the few openers or few clothes they've put out that is just a bad way to end a record. Right. I don't know what it is about it. I think it's just the, the guitar solo, the, the guitar and the bridge is just grating. <laughs> it's it's like they're trying to troll you, which you know I'm I'm down to let my favorite band troll me, but ugh. yeah, I mean I think with that record, it definitely seems like maybe their most experimental record. And you you mentioned Can earlier and sort of the crut, the crut rock influence that would be in Queens, and I feel like there's a lot of that on that record where it's like very kind of severe, stark, like chanting, like that. Uh, uh, what was that song you mentioned? It like. Uh, um. Like, what was the single off of that record? 666? Yeah, like That's 6, six yeah, it's like very kind of yeah, like... Yeah, dude from The Strokes on that song, which I thought was kind of odd. That's <laughs> true. And buried forgot, in the back. I forgot about that. Yeah, I mean, this was around the time, too, and, I, and possibly because maybe Homie was feeling like a little constricted by what Queens had become. I mean, he started being in other bands. I mean, you know, we mentioned Eagles of Death Metal so far, and of course, a couple years after... Uh, Era Valgaris, it was them Crooked Vultures where he reunited with Dave Grohl and then John Paul Jones mm-hmm. from Led Zeppelin. What is your take on the side projects? Are you as into those? I mean, I know you've written about Eagles of Death Metal uh, in the past. Uh, oh, totally. You... I mean, I'll, if that guy could, like, could uh, 
crap on a piece of vinyl and I'd still listen to it. <laughs> I mean, I think that the side projects are good. I think that right. Eagles of Death Metal is low low stakes fun. Right. And especially the is, first record, I think, is, is great. What you put on when you want to. Yeah, when you're having a party and you want to just like shake your group thing. And I think them Crooked Vultures, I actually, I really like that band. Um, I think that um, it's, I, I consider it very close to the Queen's canon in that, you know, it, it's, I mean, Hami's singing lead on everything. And a lot of those songs kind of, you, you, you feel again, the same kind of really vaguely creepy kind of uh, undertones to it, which I don't think the other, the other two brought with, to the table. Um, I also think that uh, them Crooked Vultures had a bit of a jam problem, again, on the second half of the record. But songs like Dead End, uh, Dead End Friends and uh, uh, Bandoliers are just, I think, stellar. I mean, it seems like that record, I mean, I always think of it as almost like a, you know, like a Queen's record by proxy, you know, I mean. Mm-hmm. It, That's a good way to put it. You know, where, and I think for a lot of people, they would rank, they would probably put them crooked vultures over those, those previous two Queens of the Stone Age records. I mean, it, it seems like there's maybe more of like a, a love for that them crooked vultures record, maybe because Dave Grohl's on it and John Paul Jones. It's sort of a cool combination of musicians um, who really, again, have you know you think of the legacy uh, of the bands that those other two guys were in, but they really subordinated themselves to Josh Olme in that band. I mean, because it sounds most like his music. It doesn't sound really like Led oh, Zeppelin or, yeah. or anything Dave Grohl has done. It sounds like Queens of the Stone Age. Um, it kind of speaks to the charisma of this guy that he could get people like that, you know, involved in a project and, just, and say like, okay, you're the boss. Like, we'll follow your lead on mm-hmm. this. I consider that the kind of the moment that Hami like entered the pantheon, so to speak. Like now he's kind of, you know, I think that he's kind of, as I alluded to before, but the whole, you know, he's so cool. Like he's kind of like, this generation's Iggy Pop. He was definitely an Iggy Pop type to me. I just thought, you know, and I think with this, it's like, you know, he's with two of the most important musicians in rock, period. And I think at that point, it was like, you know, let the old queens lie because now have the kind of the man, the myth, the legend at the center of everything rechristened. And uh, from that point on, I think it was uh, that, that mythos, they really doubled down on it. Yeah. Which makes it all the more interesting that it was shortly after that that I think it all you know as we've alluded to before, um, Hami just kind of he he had all of these health problems and I think kind of threw the band into an existential crisis. Did you ever hear the WTF podcast that Josh Omi was on? Ta- I did not. He he was on there like he he was promoting like clockwork. And it's a, I, I don't, it's probably still online somewhere. You should look it up. I mean, it's a pretty incredible conversation because, you know, we, we've both talked about how Josh Omi is this like sort of untouchably cool person. And I'll say like, I've interviewed Josh Omi once and he was like one of the only interview subjects I've ever had where I, I was really concerned about what he thought about me. Like, it's like, I want Josh Omi to like me. It's like, if, if Josh Omi thinks I'm uncool, then like that will ruin my life because this is like, like you said, he's like the Fonz in real life, mm-hmm. you know, he just has that kind of mystique to him. Um, but listening to that podcast, it, it is striking how, you know, kind of what we've said before that he does have this coolness to him, but I also think that he allows himself to be vulnerable and he's very vulnerable in that interview talking about how, you know, he went through a period of depression. It seems like 
to some degree, he maybe lost some of his mojo or some of his confidence. You know, I mean, cause he couldn't get out of bed. I think for several months. I mean, it was right. Real... Yeah, because he had that near death experience. He like only, he died and like basically died and came back to life yeah. on an operating table. And I mean, that would that would depress me too. And I think that after that, kind of had a a sort of you know epiphany where it was like, okay, no more bullshit. You only have you have what you have in front of you right now, yeah. and that's what you have to work with. And I think that there's very much a a, um, from that point on, both on like Clockwork and on this latest record, you definitely get that kind of lust for life in a sense. Like, and, and I know that sounds weird because like Clockwork is such a mournful album and you have, you know, some of the slowest, the most tender queen songs, some of the most, you know, the vampire of time and memory, which is like such a melodramatic song. But I also feel like it's very much the sound of a band, you know, that's, you know, they're not taking anything for granted and they they go for blood and they and they draw blood. Right. And it's that combination of of attitude and aggression, but also the vulnerability, which I think is mm-hmm. very important with, with him. And it's again like he's cool without totally being aloof. Like he's the he's the kind of guy like where you feel like you would totally look up to him, but then you feel like you could maybe call him and help he could help you move or something, you know, like he's be like that kind of friend. Um, uh, I, I could be totally wrong. I project a lot of things on the Josh Omi, but, um, yeah, like, like clockwork is an interesting record for the reasons that you mentioned that it, you know, I wouldn't say that they're ballads necessarily, but there are slower songs that are more sort of overtly emotional and over, and I think personal, uh, I think the know. last song is definitely a ballad. I mean, that doesn't, right. it, it picks up maybe like about like, it, it has the, that kind of bridge where it gets, it, where it gets really thunderous and then it just cuts out. But yeah, definitely it's got, a, but songs, you know, like songs such as If I Had a Tail are, I think, you know, classic, you know, scumbag, <laughs> scumbag Josh in a sense. I, I think they also really uh, hit it out of the park with the whole visual direction with Boneface. Um the music videos that they shared from the record leading up to its launch were all in this kind of post-apocalyptic LA and had all of these like terrifying characters like pig pig masks and um, Molotov cocktails and all this stuff. And I thought that that was just, that was a very smart move on the band's part and on Boneface's part in kind of getting that aesthetic reestablished. Right. In such a queensy fashion. And and then you skip ahead to like to the new record and you know, again, we won't go too much into this, but I mean I think people can tell from the early singles that in a way it does harken back a little bit to some of the earlier periods where I mean this album is certainly more upbeat than like clockwork. Um mm-hmm. there is I think more certainly I don't think there's a metal aspect to this record really, but there's certainly sort of like a punk rock new wave and also like a dancey aspect to it, because, you know, Mick Ronson being involved as a producer, um, although not in an obtrusive way. I think when people heard that, maybe there was some alarms that... Yeah, you know, I think it was, the, the fears were certainly, I think we over, over-exaggerated. When you listen to the record itself, he pretty much sticks to the margins. There's a couple t- bits here and there, like I, I've noticed in repeat playthroughs that this has to probably have is uh, for a Queen's album, surprisingly has like rhythmically is uh, 
it, it's tighter, but right. it's also less impactful. It's lets Hami do all the talking with the guitars and the vocals. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely more upbeat. Um, I also think that, um, it's, it's kind of cool to see nods to the past. You hear a couple, one of the songs on there, uh, head like a haunted house that started out from the era vulgaris sessions and then kind of made its way into this record. And then you have a song like, uh, the evil has landed, which, um, I can't confirm that that what started off as a them crooked vultures, uh, track, but it sure sounds like it. If you listen to the bass, right. Yeah. It's a definitely a, a a fitting portrait of where the band are right now. And, I would say, too, that the record is a great showcase for, I think, a really underrated aspect of what uh, of what Omi does, which is his uh, his vocals. I think he is one of the great singers in rock music. Oh, yeah, 100%. Just a beautiful voice. You know, he could, I mean, you could imagine him being like an Elvis-type figure if he had come out in the 50s. You know, he could have been, like, singing Love Me Tender. No, it doesn't really leave much to the imagination where that comparison is concerned, (laughs) though. Because in the new music video, he's just prancing around like Elvis. Right. I mean, they call him Ginger Elvis. So, yeah, definitely. He's got a... (laughs) He's definitely got a a croon. I mean, Queen's karaoke is always fun, you know, but it's it's not easy for most most singers. Right. Get that high up. You can't, and just the ability to croon, but also sound tough at the same time. I think is a very, mm-hmm. I think it's a deceptively yeah, hard thing to do. To it. Exactly, like he can, he can sing on just like a raging rock song without sort of being without using all the tricks that singers do in order to sound tough or to sound like they're aggressive. Yeah. He can croon it and sound pretty, but also sound badass at the same time, which is a very unique thing. And um, you know, I think I, when, when I've been listening to the new record, I've just been sort of appreciating that all over again. Like, it's like, wow, this guy has a really great voice. And even when the song maybe isn't great, I still like to hear it because he's singing it. So, you know, that, that, that goes a long way to justifying even material that might not be totally strong. It's like, well, Josh Homme is still singing it, so I like it. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should probably stop there because, you know, our editors will be upset if we scoop ourselves uh, before our, oh, that is true. Before that is our true. reviews run. But um, I am looking forward to hearing your review. Yeah. And likewise. Yeah. Likewise. Well, Zoe, it, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for making time to uh, talk about Queens of the Stone Age with me. Hey, anytime. Thank you. All right. Take care. OK, that was me and Zoe Camp, writer for Pitchfork, Village Voice, the AV Club and a bunch of other places talking about Queens of the Stone Age, their great career over the past 20 or so years. Um, As I said earlier, Zoe and I are both going to be reviewing Villains this week. I'm going to be reviewing it for uprocks.com. Zoe's review will be running at Pitchfork. I think you should read both of them. I think we might be on the same page. I talked to Zoe a little bit about what she thought about the record. Um, We might feel slightly different, though. We're either the same or we're slightly different. I'm not sure, but it's always good to get multiple opinions. And as you could tell from this conversation, Zoe knows what she's talking about. And hopefully you think I know maybe a little bit of what I'm talking about. Anyway, guys, thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast. I want to give one more shout out to our sponsors this week. They are our friends at SeatGeek and our friends at ZipRecruiter. Thank you again for uh, your support. And 
I say this every week, but I mean it, guys. Thank you for your support. Thank you for listening. Thank you for talking about this podcast. Thank you for giving us reviews on, on iTunes. Um, you know, we've been doing this for a year and a half, and we wouldn't be here if we didn't have listeners. So thank you so much for taking, you know, some time out of your day to listen to us. Uh, it's always fun to talk about music, and uh, we will talk to you guys again next week.